Welcome to another episode of After Further Review with Mark Ferreira and John Pelkey. Jeff Taylor, our producer, also on the board for us as well. This is episode 21, which means we have 20 in the books right now, which means in a normal terrestrial radio five-day-a-week job, we'd be a month in, John Pelkey, which is right around the time we usually would get fired. Yes, absolutely. We are killing that curve now, just destroying we, it. We really are. We I'm really are. good about this, but uh, you should probably announce then that this is our last show, though, because I like nothing more than to be consistent. Well, I think we should just lead with that every time, Johnny. Like, folks, this is our last show. I hope you enjoy it. And it's just based on our assumption that something will go horribly wrong. It's not a bad idea. Quote, unquote, podcast radio career. Yeah, I mean, why not? I mean, the evidence is there. It's a bad idea because then the listeners are going to stop listening because they think it was the last show. I I love how quaint and cute Jeff is with the thinking there are listeners listening. Well done out of you. God, you're such a breath of fresh air. Where we know such an optimist. We know what's happening. No, we maybe maybe we should actually create change the name to the podcast to the farewell show. And every show is just approached as if it's our last show. And we do nothing but record bits from other shows that we didn't actually do. What do you think? You're the Eagles? <laughs> Seriously. A continual farewell tour. 16 years of a farewell tour. No, you know what, though? They they. Sure, yeah, they had a long farewell tour, but it was The Who, whose first farewell tour was 1982. That's true. And they're still touring as The Who, and it doesn't matter. Soon, Daltrey and Townsend will be gone, and then it'll just be family members or acquaintances carrying on with the name. Why is Entwistle no longer there? He's dead. He's been been gone almost 20 years at this point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, about 20 years probably, Johnny. Maybe, maybe a little less, but not much. Uh, and he went out the way you'd expect him to go out. Yep. And uh, I'll tell you, you know, if Daltrey and Townsend, if and when, <laughs> when they go, I should say. Right. Uh, you, you Do know, you know the, something uh, we need to know? The Drifters, the Platters, all of those groups, the Temptations, right. all of those groups have given a template out there for continuing to tour, even if you're the fourth and fifth iteration of the actual band. I do believe the people now touring as the four tops never met any of the four tops. I mean, I, I, that sounds like a funny John Pelkey thing to say, but I think it's probably true. I think it might be true. <laughs> so the who's fine. You know, they, they've oh, got yeah. it. I mean, they, the, at least the new album, not that long ago. And, and it was pretty good. I have to be honest. It was, it was, it was quite good. They brought Daltrey's very smart. As a singer, because they brought everything now down into his race. He's not trying to be Roger Daltrey from Woodstock or Isle of Wight. They, they were they're actually they've been smarter about it. So go. Who cares? Go get them. Make make music until you and until make you, money. I'm, I'm a Kiss fan and I'm relatively certain that they have uh, they already have uh, two guys who aren't Peter, Chris and Ace Freely in the makeup. And I'm sure Simmons and Stanley will drop out at some point and then it'll just be. A big tribute band, which is essentially what it's been for a while anyway. <laughs> it, uh, S- Simmons and Stanley aren't actually doing it anymore. They've just paid. They may stand-ins. not be. They've they just may not paid be. Yep, they're raking the money. They're in some sort of you know island, Barbados, 
just uh, collecting, collecting. They're not performing at all. It's going to be interesting. You know, the Stones, of course, throw throw that entire curve off because, right. you know, the Stones, the, the you know, Richards and Charlie Watts and Mick Jagger and even Ronnie Wood at this point in time, you know, they've outlasted eight generations of the Temptations. So that's that's, you know, pretty <laughs> remarkable at this point in time. John, does it bother you that the song that pulled me in to kiss was God Gave Rock and Roll to You? No, it actually doesn't bother me at all. You, you would think it would. Uh, but no, it really doesn't bother me at all because it's, it's, it's a pretty good tone. And it was on uh, what I think is their best non-makeup album, um, uh, Revenge. That, that's, that was somewhat of a uh, step forward. I can't believe we're talking about the music. People are just tuning out immediately. No, tuning people, out, people like, people like music. Okay, well, it, but it kisses... Uh, Kind of a litmus test for some people, but that's true. Uh, that's I, kind of a stretch there, Jeff. They uh, they they made their best makeup a non makeup album with Revenge, and then three years later they uh, they they put the makeup back on and went on tour, and uh, you know here here we are now. So I, I that doesn't bother me at all. It's a great song, but go back and listen to the first three albums and the first live album. Oh, that's, I have. That's the that's introduction the to Kiss. The introduction to Kiss was God gave rock and roll to you. Got it. Very nice. I have a lot of respect for that band, Johnny. I really do. I, hey, I give them a hard what? time, but they are nowhere near. They are nowhere near Starship. I'm telling no. you that right now. <laughs> yeah, because they they never had the credibility that the band Starship uh, evolved out of. They never fell that far. Exactly. They were right. They, they, with the critics, they didn't have any credibility anyway, so they couldn't be uh, Jefferson Airplane and then become Starship. Which uh, Starship or Fog? Okay, Mark. Here you go. There's a there's a raging fire and you are the only person who can save anyone. And in the house, it's Starship and Foghat. Wait, the, the, the members of it? Yes, but the you can people? they're on some sort of pallet. So you can pick them up with your superhuman save people strength to save. Which band do you save? OK, hang on. Seven minutes into our show, you're giving me a Sophie's choice. I wow. mean, it has turned dark so already. You feel, you feel like Foghat and Starship are your children. I, I was going to say <laughs> no. More I'm of being, a catch I'm being too, asked but... to choose who lives and who dies. Unbelievable. Oh, come uh, on. Everybody wants that power. I would probably have to save Grace Slick. Yeah, you'd save Starship because of Grace Slick. And, you know, Paul Kantner and yep. guys who were – people who were actually in Jefferson Airplane. Yeah. Foghat, you know, though, you'd start the fire. <laughs> I don't, you know, it, I thought you were going to say if I had to choose an, an album or a band, who would I choose? And I would probably choose Foghat over Starship. I like Jefferson Starship. I obviously sure, love Oc Jefferson Air. Red Octopus, great album. Yeah, very good. Very good stuff in the in the 70s. But uh, but Starship, no, they just um, they they broke a, a sacred covenant, if you ask me. <laughs> I love, I love that. Jeff, Jeff's a great musician. Jeff will appreciate that. I love when people determine the band shouldn't have made that album. <laughs> As if they have any responsibility. Yeah, they should never have done that. You know, you know, maybe it sucked and not everybody's great all the time, but no, no, broke a covenant, broke the rules. If, if, you, if you gave me a Sophie's choice, whether to uh, say Foghat, Starship or Mark's Taste in Music, I can only guarantee you the one that I'm not saving is Mark's Taste in Music. Wow. <laughs> wow. 
Unbelievable. I think I have outstanding taste in music, but that's just me, you know, and may- maybe that's the problem. That's why I have such bad taste in music in yeah. your mind, Jeff. Would you know if you did have bad taste in music? Would you know? Because uh, if of you course had, not. Hey, I have horrible taste in music. Odds are you might change your taste in music. So, no, uh, you know, Foghat and Starship, Jeff, they may they may hold a place in your heart. And, and who am I? Who am I to judge? Really? One of my best friends was the drummer for a short period of time in Jefferson Starship. And I still don't care about Jefferson Starship. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Very nice. There you go. Well, there, right oh, on, maybe on, maybe he has a problem with my taste in music, John, is that he started leaving the Jefferson Airplane bandwagon. When it turned to Jefferson Starship, well before Starship, he's wondering what my problem is, is why I waited so long. Wait till they just become ship. And Mark, <laughs> then Mark will be but just violent towards them. Wow. All right. No sports talk. Exactly how I like it. We're ready for progressive trivia, John Pelkey. And you know what, folks? I'm I'm proud of John Pelkey on multiple levels. First level is that he essentially created the entire agenda for this show, even though that was my responsibility. The, the man, two days ago, was ready to just chuck the whole thing and not do the show and say, screw it, I can't think of anything to talk about. Two days later, he's emailing me dozens of articles, and everything we're talking about today is out of John Pelkey's head. So congratulations, he, uh, he bounces back like no one else. And then he normally does progressive, he normally does baseball progressive trivia, because it's frankly, easier to do because it's easier to sort of mask who that person is, uh, give people uh, rabbit trails to go down and the like. If you've ever written a progressive trivia, you know what we're talking about to the one or two other people out there. So, Riley, you know what we're talking about. (laughs) Riley and and, and Joe Candelore, if if he ever listens to this. No chance. He's busy busy perusing his kids' bank accounts. (laughs) Friggin' Murray Wilson. All right. Okay, so this is this is yet another example of John Pelkey stepping it up in the era of, of COVID, you, and he's give, he's giving us a football progressive trivia. Go ahead, Johnny. You shamed me into it. By the way, you're like oh, I always do baseball. <laughs> First of all, there are uh, probably in the history of Major League Baseball there are more baseball players, so that makes it a little bit easier to do. Um, and, uh, and, and you're right though. I think the statistical thing and, and the ability to put down statistics that sound like you're giving people a lot of information, yes. like, like saying, you know, his postseason on base percentage. Well, let me tell you something. If you know anybody's postseason on base percentage, who's not either you or an immediate member of your family, honestly, get a life. All right. Get right. a life. Uh, I'm happy. My ability to shame you is still is still uh, functioning at a high level. All right, here we go. Looking for an NFL football player, past or present, four-time Pro Bowler. Led the NFL in passer rating five times. Four Pro Bowls, but led the NFL in passer rating five times, which is interesting. Uh, Didn't become a full-time starter till his fourth season in the league and had a 61% completion percentage in postseason. Not a clam. Not a clam at all, Mark Ferreira. No, not at all. Those are uh, interesting clues. I love the uh, five-time passer rating. I mean, that's a but only that's a significant career. Yeah, oh, but only four Pro Bowls, which I thought was – it's why when you're arranging here, – here you go, folks. Here's a lesson in, in writing progressive trivia. When I was arranging those, I thought, well, those two have to go together because that engenders conversation. How do you lead uh, the league in passer rating 
and not make the Pro Bowl. And and you know what? I will say when we do these, we're, we're, I'm not. That's not doing some funny thing like didn't play in the Pro Bowl because he was injured or something. He was elected to four Pro Bowls, but one year he led the league in passer rating, did not make the Pro Bowl. The the only thing I would think of is that that means it was before passer rating was kind of a thing. It was before really because if you look at the statistics nowadays, they they determine what the passer rating was before it was even uh, for like guys like Unitas and Namath. And and uh, players and Stabler, players that played before the passer rating stat even came into being. So maybe that's the thing, because the people voting into the Pro Bowl didn't even <laughs> didn't even have that stat to refer to. Uh, uh, and an answer, but very quick uh, jumping on that one, Mark, it is not Ken Anderson. OK, and by the way, normally when we do a progressive trivia at the club, I'll give a clue that makes it seem like it's someone else. So of people will come sprinting up to the uh, up to the booth. And because, uh, you know, there's nothing better than, you know, running through a restaurant. Um, but they come sprinting up to the booth and I would wait until they got within about, I don't know, eight <laughs> yards of the booth. And then I would say it's not that guy just to watch them either try to put the brakes on or just the level of disappointment in wow, their face. Just, it Man. drives me. That's, um, yeah. So, it, it, it helped you get, uh, go to work every you day. Know, it helped you get up in the morning. Yes. So I would say to people, because you dropped his name, it is not Kenny Stabler. OK, I dropped with the Kenny fourth St- year. You dropped the name. And I know when you were thinking of old school quarterbacks, you were that was subliminally. I'm going to slip slip the Stabler in there because I know he didn't start because he was behind LaMonica for a period of time and whatnot. But yeah. it is not Ken Anderson, nor is it Kenny Stabler. Both, though, good guesses, though. I think Anderson started earlier than that. Yeah, I, I was- we talk about a loss to history guy. Yeah, no doubt about it. As a matter of fact, he had consecutive uh, – what was it? Oh, he He's had two. Only, he, only he had, player in NFL history who led the league in passing in two different decades. Yes, exactly. And he did it twice in twice. the 70s and yep. the 80s. So that's pretty neat. Okay, those are our first four progressive trivia clues. Let's go to our first topic of the day, which is a great article Johnny sent me about the real possibility – that once this season is over, and hope we all hope and pray that it happens for Major League Baseball, uh, one of the discussion points that is out there, and I think no matter what plan you're reading or what iteration of the plan you're reading, uh, there's not going to be any DH this year. And even though next year, more than likely, the National League will adopt it in 2022 when the new collective bargaining is is uh, going to be signed is on the table and hopefully tony clark we've talked about this addresses some of those issues now mark has no no optimism when tony clark is involved no i don't i really don't but he really there, there's only one thing he should be he should be thinking about and that is to lock down some some real uh, desires that the players have wanted for years and years for the collective bargaining agreement and then take the high road and look like the hero saving baseball as the players only get the revenue share that the owners have proposed. But that's neither here nor there. We've talked about that forever. A lot of people, especially this uh, person that wrote the article, thinks that in 2022, the DH will become permanent. And John, in in this guy's mind, it's because it's not just it, it's not just what you know, they will have done this year and it, they would have seen that it works and it gives more offense. All of, all of the sort of the hoary arguments we've heard in the past and, you know, pitchers bat 125, this, that and the other. But it's really the players. The players want it because it extends careers yep. and and it bolsters salaries. 
Yeah, because it it can help a lot of guys out, too, because, you know, you can take essentially a three-quarter off day from the field and DH and add to your statistics. And in a sport where offensive statistics drive your pay a lot, it's it's a very good thing. I understand why the players want it. I, I'm disappointed. And by the way, it's USA Today and it's Bob Nightingale. I'll put the article up on our page because it is an interesting read. And I, I'm only going to take issue with one thing you said, Mark, where he believes he, – he doesn't believe – he says that it right. is exactly what will happen. Right, right, right. That there's going to be a DH in the National League for this shortened season. I think we all realize how that makes sense moving forward and that it may it may go away next year for 2021. But in 2022, it will be back. There will no longer be – pitchers batting in major league baseball starting in 2022 and i think it's driven by the players that the players really want that and if we talked about the hall of fame we talked about dhs you you had a progressive trivia last show paul molitor who people have said was primarily a dh but he may have spent most of his career maybe a, a couple more years as a dh than as a regular position player but he really became paul molitor as a position player, he did. The, the, just the position on him is he was the first guy, I believe, in the Hall of Fame who had uh, hit the majority of his at bats yeah. as a designated hitter. But like when an Edgar Martinez and a David Pop, uh, David Ortiz and David Poppy gets in there, uh, it's going to be more and more of a regular thing. And then, of course, if it's established in both leagues, then it won't even be something to talk no. about. But the argument we often bring up, Johnny. The National League style of play that we like, the small ball, quote unquote, the bunting a man over, putting him into scoring position, putting pressure on the defense. Yes. Taking an extra base on a base hit. All of that stuff. The double switch with the with the pitcher. Uh, Mr. Nightingale argues that a lot of that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, You know, this idea of a three run home run, the Earl Earl Weaver was decades ahead of his time. Uh, sort of, sort of ruling the game. You know, big strikeout pitchers, big home run hitters, and that's sort of it. Has bled into the National League to some degree, and this is the this is the thing that turned me in the article, John, because we've talked about a manager and what they have to do to figure out: Do I keep up my pitcher in? Do I not? Do I do I uh, take him out? Do I pull a double switch? What do I do? Well, Tony Larusa weighed in on that issue. And Tony La Russa has won World Series in both leagues, won multiple pennants in both leagues, won a division, for crying out loud, with the Chicago White Sox at one point in time. Uh, certainly didn't perform in World Series games as well as we think he, he, he could have. A modern-day uh, Earl Weaver, though they were contemporaries, but a little bit the same. Great well, one World Series in both leagues, which is right. you know, highly noteworthy. But but uh, is, the teams perform better in regular season than they often did in the postseason. He said that in the AL, it's almost tougher to know when to pull a pitcher because it's not decided for you half the time, which it is in the National League. You've got to just make that call. The game and the strategy, the book, will tell you when to take out a pitcher oftentimes in the National League if it's their time to to get up this, that, and the other. It's like you got to pull them. Okay, I don't want to disagree with Tony Larusa, but, but doesn't that make sense on some level? It does, but let me let me play this card for you. When you have a pitcher batting in the order, um, it doesn't just affect the inning that's coming up. It affects, in all likelihood, 
the inning before that, particularly if you have runners on base and if you make decisions then about moving runners ahead, because, you know, coming up the next inning, you're you, you know, you only have a and I'm going to give I'm going to throw Brian Winninger a, a, a bone here and say, you know, you only, you only really have two batters coming up. So, you know, so I think that while I while that makes a great deal of sense and uh, really that's knowing when to pull your pitcher is the manager's most important job, I think you would agree, in baseball, handling a pitching staff. And that's why the pitching coach, often the most unsung member of a, of a baseball organization. Um, but I do think that it uh, that's the one thing that it does is it expands those decisions out to the inning before and the inning after. A little bit when you're in the American League with the DH, but I think more so when you have a pitcher. So it might be a little bit of a push in that respect. But it is a good point, and, and, and LaRusa makes a great argument. Well, just it being a push, John, is you know, a long way from where we used to think that argument lay. Yeah. And here's, that, that was a no-brainer. This is something that doesn't happen in, that, in the American League. This kind of you know, thinking about a pitcher doesn't happen. And he makes the good point that, yeah, it, you're on your own on this one. And here's the other thing, too, and, and, you know, as I argue the opposite side of what I want, because I would prefer that there that the, the leagues remain with one league with a DH and one without. I just find that interesting. I find that interesting when you get to postseason and whatever for, forces uh, managers to do the chess game involved. Um, you can still play National League ball in the American League. In fact. I know New York Yankee fans uh don't really know anything about baseball, so they, they, uh, I may be telling them some they didn't know. But that's what Joe Torre did with those Yankee teams in the 90s. They did those things. They do, they would double steal. They'd hit behind the runner. Um, he played a National League style of baseball, which is not surprising, given that Joe Torre's career was essentially a National League career. Um, so you can still do those things. It doesn't have to be the Earl Weaver get two guys on three-run homer. You can still play small ball with a designated hitter. And in fact, Joe Torre, I've heard arguments where Joe Torre said it actually made me more likely to do it because the then the bat that you, you have, the person you have up to bat is going to be better at doing any of the things that the pitcher would have to do, including bunting. If he is indeed, you know, th- that's his job is to hit. Every day, as opposed to once every, you know, eight days, 10 days. Right. And and I mean, the argument is and and all of the AL arguments out there come down to that. Why would you put someone who never takes a swing except once every five days in, in batting practice and maybe not even that? You know, why would you put someone up to bat who is not used to it? And, of course, part of the players' thing is expanding careers and expanding salaries for the DH, but it's also to avoid getting hurt as a pitcher. Yeah. You know, managers don't want to have the pitcher get on and have to run the bases. They they, they don't want to risk that. Ownership doesn't want to risk that. Right. That's part of why this guy thinks it's just a no-brainer, uh, that it's done. Even though you're right, you can play small ball with, with the DH, but if you have someone that can't hit, <laughs> that you know comes up every nine batters it does make it more fun uh, at least if you come from that point of view it makes it more fun to try and manufacture a run right 
And I like that. I've never been I've never been the guy who uh, is like, I, I guess I, I guess I tend to be a defensive guy across the board because I'm never a guy who thinks that more scoring always makes it a better game because I don't always necessarily think that's true. Some of the best baseball games ever. We talked about that. Uh, and and, and uh, you were there when Walter Johnson went 18 innings with uh, <laughs> pitched the whole time. And it was a one nothing victory. Right. Over 18 innings. But I, I and all joking aside, I think you agree with me. Not every baseball game you watch is scoring, you know, a, I guess a 22 to 11 game is interesting on some level. But 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 at a point, I, I do love the idea of uh, forcing the defense to play baseball. All right. All right. I like it a lot. All right, Johnny, let's give us four more clues for progressive trivia. Here they go. All right, again, looking for an NFL football player, past or present. Let me give you the first four clues. Again, he's a four-time Pro Bowler, led the NFL in passer rating five times, didn't become a full-time starter till his fourth year in the league, had a 61% completion percentage in postseason. Career numbers, 3,000-plus pass attempts, 18,000. Excuse me, 3,000-plus passing uh, attempts, 1,800, because 18,000. Would be amazing. 1,800 plus completions, 150 plus touchdowns. He's a former MVP. He was the 200th pick in the draft out of an SEC school. And his postseason numbers, 15 touchdowns and only three interceptions. Okay, say those last four again one more time for me. Thank you. All right. Career numbers, 3,000 pass attempts, uh, 3,000 plus, excuse me, pass attempts, 1,800-plus completions, 150-plus touchdowns. He was an MVP. He was a 200 pick in the draft out of an SEC school. And in postseason, his numbers, 15 touchdowns and only three interceptions. I like that one, Mark, because you and I always go back to interceptions in postseason when we, we start ranking quarterbacks. Yeah, no doubt about it. I'm sorry I was a little delayed there because I think I have a guess, but I don't know. I don't know, and I'm going to guess it right now. And uh, and then we'll move on to our next uh, category, which is uh, the memorabilia culture. You sent me another great article, John Pelkey. You are correct, uh, sir. What's that? You are correct. Okay, beautiful. Beautiful. Nice. Come on. I'm feeling good. good. That's good. That's good. Was it the pick number? It was the pick. It helped. That helped me. SEC helped me. And the postseason numbers also help me. Okay. Uh, but um, and and then I wasn't sure, but I figured with I figured with him. I, I didn't say it. Uh, I didn't. Say you did. It. You almost did. You you, you, you did. You, you I, I have like this left. situation with my with my children all the time, where someone will say, "Don't say that in front of them," and I say, "They would have never noticed if you hadn't pointed it out." <laughs> right. So who's at fault here, Jeff? Really? I think you. I think you've. Well, you've told you us all. you said it. But then John made such a big deal out of it that now people are backing it up 30 seconds to find out what you said. It's a, it, boy, once again, Jeff's so optimistic that anyone would take the time, A, to listen to begin with, and then to go, wait, I'll be able to guess it on my... Uh, I don't think anybody's... Anyway, sorry about that. Let's talk no, about memorabilia, memorabilia culture. You could, you could always, uh, I guess, go back and edit that and just go... Have some sort of sound effect over that. I may Have. use that exact sound for the sound effect. <laughs> that's that's go. good. Yesterday was the 40th anniversary of Empire Strikes Back uh, being released, so Mark made a sound of a bantu or something there. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. I was used. I was uh, I, I was used in that movie. It was uh, my retirement gift. 
to uh, myself. I was able to do some voiceover for Empire Strikes Back in 1980. All right, here we go. Memorabilia culture. You sent me a great article about uh, someone bidding for a Super Bowl ring for over a million dollars, John. A New England Patriots Super Bowl ring. Robert Kraft's New England Patriots Super Bowl ring. Got us to thinking about that culture. We were around it a lot uh, at the ESPN Club, and we had years and years of um, interviewing very big-name athletes. And uh, we saw it at the ESPN The Weekend as well. And people, even more than wanting to have a moment, even have a picture with uh, their favorite player, ask them a question, have a you know a life define not a life defining, but certainly a, a a very memorable moment with one of their perhaps childhood heroes. Much more than any of that, they wanted to have them sign something so that they could turn it around and and sell the damn thing. And um, I, I, I always had kind of a bad taste in my mouth, John, about this. Uh, but when I saw more and more of that kind of stuff, it just seemed like this is just – this is pretty seedy. Well, you're being am, pretty Am kind. I wrong? You know, you're being kind, in fact, to say you know somebody just wanted to get an autograph. The problem we had at the ESPN club – was we had people who would come in and this this uh, it would happen whenever we would have athletes. But one of the biggest uh, times that it was a problem was during college football awards because we would have the banquet the night before and it was set up so people could come in and get some signatures from the college stars. Um, and they'd sit up at a table and, you know, people walk through you know, any sort of convention situation. But we had people showing up with duffel bags full of things and um I guess it wasn't people didn't really see it coming and there weren't enough uh, people uh, managing the situation that guys would stand there and get 12 things signed. Oh, and I got a couple of helmets and here's a jersey and blah, blah, blah. And then to your point, Mark, that they weren't putting them up in their rec room. And I have no issue with that. I don't collect anything like that. And I but I don't have an issue with that. But they would then turn them around and uh, and sell them. So it became at, at a point we stopped doing it. So once again, it ruined it for other people who did have great uh, interactions. I remember Roger Clemens and he used to come to the, the club on a fairly regular basis. We interviewed Roger a lot. And I remember he would stand there and sign things and he would take little kids. He took a kid and was showing him how to throw probably an eight year old kid how to throw a curveball. And right. parents were weeping, getting video of this. Right. And all of exactly. that had to go away because yep. some clown wanted to sell, uh, you know, a Roger Clemens uh, glove on eBay. And it took up too much time and they had to call over too much security to do it and stopped being uh, a viable thing to do. So that bothered me. Here's the thing with the craft thing that got me, though, guys. So somebody paid over a million bucks for Robert Kraft's Super Bowl 41, I think, ring. It was. Well, the team commissions Jostens or whomever makes the rings for them to make the ring. So this whoever was dropped a million bucks on Robert Kraft's ring. Robert Kraft can simply go back to them and have them make him another ring. Right. What's the intrinsic value of that? Wasn't this for charity, though? Wasn't it for COVID-19 well, relief? Well, yeah, I, I, it, it, it was, and, and Kraft wasn't giving it, uh, Kraft wasn't giving it to uh, uh, taking the money. That's a good point. But it just brought up the memorabilia thing and the intrinsic value of these things. And I thought, well, this one particularly, because Bob Kraft could just simply go back to the jeweler and have them make him another ring. Which he will do. 
Yeah. He so probably had a couple in his bedside table anyway. He's like, wait, wait, I, I think I have three of this year. Take one of these, honey. Really nice, nice massage. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, but but you know, I get like the game worn jersey situation sure. and all of that. But this one just seemed like, uh, and again, it went to charity. I think it's great. I have no issue with that. But it just brought up this whole memorabilia yep. situation. Culture. It's yeah, and it's a culture that they really don't understand, and that goes back a long way for me because yeah. as we talked about on the show. Uh, my dad worked at the White House uh, my whole until I was 21. He started there seven years before I was born. And we would go to Christmas parties and stuff. And I met presidents, you know, and vice presidents and all of that. And people would uh, get autographs while they were in line to meet the president during these Christmas parties for the staff at the mansion. My dad was an electrician. And uh, I just always remember my mother being appalled that you would do that in that setting. Yeah. And so maybe that's part of it for me. But like you, Mark, uh, I prefer to collect experiences than things. My wife and I aren't like big thing people. We like to travel. Um, So that's going really well. Um, So it's hard for me to understand dropping a lot of money on sports memorabilia. I have uh, two things, and they're both signed by the same guy. (laughs) And I didn't get either of them. One of them, my wife was working a, a gig. She's a performer, and she was working a gig out of town for Nickelodeon. And got and the guy was a member of the Redskins, and I'll tell you who in uh, in just a minute. But she said, "Hey, one, I you know I met a Washington Redskin, and I got a signature. I don't know if it's uh, I don't know if it's somebody you'd want the signature of, signed picture." And then the same guy signed a helmet at the ESPN Club when I was interviewing him, and one of the managers there, you know, saved it for me, thinking, you know, that was, and it was a nice thing, a nice gesture, but it was Daryl Green, yeah, who I love, and I've interviewed any number of times, and I love Daryl Green. So I said to my wife, I go, well, I don't really collect these, but yeah, this would be one if you were going to. Um, but those are the only ones that I have, and I didn't get them on my own. I got them for other people a couple of times, but I just didn't really, uh, I don't understand that. Uh, you know, just that entire subculture kind of is odd to me. And then the idea that some things like this, like Super Bowl rings and things are thing are items that the person who sold it to you could just replace it. Something, yeah, you know, it's, it's a game ball from a game, a sure. game used jersey or anything like that. I get it. I just don't get things. Uh, like just a helmet that you bought, you went to, you dropped, you went to Keith Abbott and Rydell, and you and you dropped some cash on a, on a helmet, and then had a guy, and then had a guy sign. Right. Uh, I, I don't know. I just don't get it. I think I didn't that, do that. I think that it used to be about the experience of going and getting it autographed, but once yeah, that went that. away, now that there's a now that there's an audience for uh, purchasing things that they had nothing to do with getting, which I think is ridiculous, but it's also. Uh, morons can ruin everything. It's the same thing with like tickets to things. Yes. Now there's an outlet where you can go sell tickets. That, so they buy up all the tickets and then they sell them for way more. It's just, yeah. it's, we need the, uh, I've always said that you need an asshole algorithm. And if you can figure out how to weed out the assholes, you can fix everything. Traffic, good point. tickets, all of those things. We need to figure out the asshole algorithm. Well, it's a good point, Jeff, too, because somebody, you get a ticket for a concert and somebody will go, you get that on the secondary market? And I would always say, what's the first dairy market today? There is only it's a secondary gone now. market. You're right. It's gone. 
Yeah, it's it, it. It you're right, Jeff. First of all, I want to address Jeff's uh, you know master race sort of theory. I think that's good. Weed, weeding out the undesirables from society is a long-standing tradition. Uh, hey, uh, if if you time. if you can find anybody that supports the race of assholes, then <laughs> I'll I'll well, I'll retract my statement. Again, there's a lawyer somewhere that'll defend them. Again, exactly. There's always there's always been a a group that has been summarily dismissed. No, I, I'm I'm kidding there. I think that's a a solid theory. And and I agree with you, John. It's always been you know obviously it was seedy when they would come to the club and they would have kids come up and say that they you know and they would just hire these kids. It's like they they were Fagin. It's like they're playing oh, yeah. Fagin. You know, in Oliver or or you know, these guys in India that pay children to come up and do whatever it is. It's like here, it, here, it take this real. crutch, take this crutch, and go get Drew Brees' autograph. Seriously, hello, sir. Could you please sign my paper? Not not sure how much longer I'll be along around, but this is this will give me some level of joy. Thank you, Mister Fav. And anyway, oddly, they, they all did approach with a Cockney accent, which is it was it was it was bizarre and it's seedy and it's just odd anyway. You know, we know people we know people who collect that, that have entire rooms filled with memorabilia, bats, seats from stadiums, which I guess all that's cool. Baseball signed by a bunch of people, footballs, all that's fine. It's just not my cup of tea, and I just find it a little odd. I really yeah. do because it's I, I I look at someone's room if if I see a picture, say of their their I don't know their rec room, <laughs> whatever they call it, and I and I look at it and I just start getting tired and bored. It's like how many of these things, and even if I am you know in someone's uh, house and in the hallway or something, there's a there's a a framed napkin of George Bush's signature or whatever it is, it's like, ah, okay, you met George Bush and he signed, you know, it's like, ah, uh, I would rather enjoy the experience. If someone takes a picture, great, but I normally don't keep the pictures. My mom has a wall of all of the pictures of me interviewing either Giants or 49ers, <laughs> and uh, one of them was signed. I didn't even get it signed. I'm exactly like you. It just doesn't, it just doesn't matter to me. It really doesn't. So I, I think is. I think there are some things that could be I think you could you could be you would enjoy the one that my wife's aunt has. She has one of the original copies uh, of Richard Nixon's resignation letters over the toilet in her guest bathroom. You know what? But that wow. again, that's an original that, you know, it, it, it's not like, hey, I bought a photocopy off of H.R. Haldeman because he, he needed money <laughs> for defense of uh I photocopied 2,000 of these. It's 100 bucks a piece. Right. <laughs> the poor guy's voice, it's like, oh, I'm desperate. I got nothing. Yeah, if I had an original Magna Carta, if someone were to deliver that to the door, I would keep it. Yes, yes, I wow. agree. Wow. What are the odds? Just, uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh... I'm just going door to door. I got an original copy of the Magna Carta. The, the first 5,000 yep. people I tried didn't take it. So will you be the one? And it's that New York guy. You know, it's that and somehow it's always, and it's always like, you know, sort of like Cliff or, or Boston guy. All right. From uh, Cheers. I got a couple things here. I got the, I got a copy of the thing Martin Luther uh, hammered up against the door. I got the Magna Carta. Here's the Articles of Confederation. Uh, here's uh, Robert E. Lee. Uh, he's uh, resigning from the U.S. Army. Uh, any any interest? 
No? Sure sure thing, Cliff. That sounds exactly like Cliff Clavin. That's perfect. All right, we're ready for our last set of progressive trivia clues. Remember, folks, you didn't hear what the answer was because you heard that sound uh, earlier in the show. Go ahead, Johnny. All right, uh, we'll revisit our first eight clues. Four-time Pro Bowler, led uh, NFL and passer rating five times. Didn't become a full-time starter till his fourth season. Had a 61% completion percentage in the postseason. Career numbers, 3,000-plus attempts, 1,800-plus completions, 150-plus touchdowns. Former MVP. He's a 200 pick out of an SEC school, and his postseason numbers, 15 touchdowns, three interceptions. Final four clues, one at least. A Super Bowl. Retired with the second best passer rating of all time. By the way, when he retired, Otto Graham held the best passer rating of all time. Uh, Losing record as a head coach. And here's my favorite clue. I was replaced as head coach by a former teammate I played 14 years with and who was inducted into the Hall of Fame in the same class. Love that. How about that? And has a relation to my first guess. Uh, yes, indeed. Yes, very much. Very much. So there That's you go. That's pretty fun. I love that kind of stuff. I really do. I love that I kind of stuff. I found it interesting when I was looking into because I was looking, knowing this guy was in the Hall of Fame, I thought, well, let me see who was in his Hall of Fame class and see if there's something there. And quite the class, Gail Sayers among the players in that. But then I saw, oh, my God, well, these guys played together, and I knew for a long time, so I went and looked it up. And then I found... Because I had no memory of the guy who replaced him being the head coach of that team. I remember him coaching another team, but I did not remember that he was the head coach of that team. So interesting stuff. Yeah, good stuff. All right. So there are your 12 progressive trivia hints. We will give you the answer a little bit later in the show. All right. Our potpourri segment, John, you established this in our last episode episode 20 which was the end of our fourth week would have been the end of our fourth week and as we have let people know this is our fifth week normally we would be out of a job by now so this very well could be our last show but we're certainly not going to lead with that our potpourri segment i want to talk about a few things in it and maybe introduce a potential new parlor game i know that uh you know that just hits john the wrong way that phrase uh, but uh, I think it could be fun. First thing is that Jerry Sloan has passed away. Jerry Sloan, uh, one of the greatest coaches of all time. I'd like to challenge you, Jeff, uh, briefly, actually, br- very briefly, uh, to talk about him versus Eric Spolstra. But, Johnny, this guy, only one of two coaches all time to have a 1,000 victories with the same team. I'm a, I didn't even look it up. I'm assuming it's Red Auerbach who's the other one. It is, yeah. And that's just nuts. And- 15 straight years with a winning record. That's the this one guy I was, was unbelievable. Say. 15 straight years of the with a winning record. Uh, he went through a decent period, uh, Jerry Sloan, where he had Stockton and Malone. But then he made the change uh, later with uh, Darren Williams and um, uh, uh, Boozer. Uh, uh, I wanted to say uh, Carlos Boozer running the same sort of pick and roll offense and had success with that. Um, so. Yeah, he just – Jerry Sloan's a guy who, again, you start talking about the greats because he didn't win a championship, and he went to back-to-back and lost them both. Um, he doesn't get a mention, but you look at his whole basketball career as a player. He was an excellent player and as a coach, and he's he's just up there. I would say he's one of the greats. I, I would too. I don't think he's a Mount Rushmore guy. 
but no, he, no championships will do that. Yeah, exactly. He's right up there. Jeff, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, great coach. Uh, I remembered him fondly. I was very sad to see that this morning, but he uh, has not reached the top of the mountain where my good friend Eric Spolstra has more than once. Yes, he has. So you, you would say Spolstra, you would go on record saying Spolstra's a better head coach? Uh, today, especially. Wow, my goodness. Going forward, Man. yes. Hashtag too soon. Hashtag <laughs> too soon. I don't think well, ever has it, is, there been a sooner too soon. Better coach today, Jerry Sloan or Isaiah? Jerry Sloan. I, I think Jerry Sloan, yeah. Yes, too. yes. My goodness. Even yeah. for in-game decisions. Sure, sure. Because Jerry Sloan won't be making any, but all of Isaiah's will be wrong. So... Better to make none than to make 18 wrong ones. Good call. Good call. Jerry Sloan today, better coach than Isaiah Thomas. Than Isaiah... Thomas. Thomas. Wow. Early onset. All right. Here we go. Let's move on to the match, which is happening. Uh, I loved this this idea, this... uh, Match play ball. Actually, it's best ball, isn't it, John? It's best ball. They're it's playing two different play. front nine. The front nine is a best ball, and uh, the back nine is uh, it's changed up a little. It's a, it's a um, what's the other? Gosh, I, I had this match play. Yeah, well, yeah, it not it's not a match play situation, but uh, it, it's a little bit different. It's you, you can't just they're not just doing best ball the whole time. This the the back nine. We had a match, uh, I believe, two years ago between uh, Tiger and Phil Mickelson, which was a classic. It really was. I think it was the fourth playoff hole where Mickelson won. Now they're adding Peyton Manning and Tom Brady. And my favorite thing about this, John, is that they've really thought about these matchups and these pairings more to the point. Oh, yeah. Because they're pairing up a controversial at best, reviled at worst person. With a relatively speaking, universally beloved person. So you've got Tiger Woods, who is controversial at best, reviled at worst, inexplicably, but no explain. You know, if we had Jeff's law in the land, he wouldn't be reviled. Actually, to some people's point, he may actually not be part of the the world, but uh, I disagree with that. At any rate, Tiger Woods is paired with Peyton Manning, who outside of John Palkey, for the most part, John, is universally beloved. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and I and, and my whole Peyton Manning thing, I've always said this, and it, it really doesn't make any sense, like most of my existence. But, uh, you know, I hate him because he went to Tennessee and not Florida. And uh, Well, not got, just most of what you you say, but most of your entire existence doesn't sure, make sense. Sure, yeah, exactly. Like, um, but... Uh, and in, in Florida beat him four times. He never beat the University of Florida, unlike his brother, who beat him twice with uh, not even arguably teams that weren't as good. Um, but Manning still got all the press. And as a as a Gator, it was like, why are we talking about Peyton Manning? He can't beat Danny Werfel, and he struggled even to do that in the pros when Danny Werfel was with the Redskins and Steve Spurrier, a much better Colts team, and went in there and lost. So they kind of had his number a little bit. But uh, – I have really softened on Peyton Manning and really during this quarantine a lot because I've been watching his series. Yeah. He's a brilliant comic performer. Yeah, he's he's got a lot going. There's no doubt about it. Absolutely brilliant. And there's an episode where he and Eli make uh, NFL uh, Vince Lombardi trophies out of cornflake boxes. And it's 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 hysterical 
because they're both sitting there and, you know, it's obvious their relationship comes through and everything. But Eli's still, you know, moderately uncomfortable and everything. And Peyton is just so smooth and so good. Now, given Peyton's work ethic, which is legendary, I assume he's rehearsing. Eli was probably tired because I'm sure Peyton rehearsed him for like 16 straight hours with no uh, with no sleep. But I've turned the corner on Peyton Manning. So he's universally beloved, and the other pairing is Tom before, Brady. Before you go there, I'm sorry. Before you go there, did you see the story today where Eli Manning signed the wall on the locker room after he beat the Dallas Cowboys in his first game at the new stadium? He moved no. up a few notches in my book of like when I read that story today. Yeah, I kind of like Eli, but he's just more awkward than Peyton. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt about it. There's no and, and you're right about the work ethic. He's probably just been driven into the ground by by Peyton and and Peyton really has shown quite a bit in his uh post-retirement life in terms of uh his his performance. He, he he showed traces, he showed flashes I should say in that great one of the best ESPN uh commercials out there with as they're touring the offices with Archie Manning. Oh, and and and, uh, and, and their mother too, yeah. Yeah, uh, just just a classic. So uh, but yeah, Tom Brady now is being paired. Tom Brady, who's controversial, reviled at worst. I would say he's reviled. Would you not, John? Uh, oh yeah, there are places where he's reviled. There's no doubt about it. So, and they're pairing him with someone who's essentially, relatively speaking, universally beloved in Phil Mickelson. So they've done a nice job. If they would have paired Brady with Tiger, that wouldn't have worked as well. It right. Would have been would have been too easy to root against that particular pairing. Now, yeah, here's the thing, too. If you look at it, you you look at uh, Brady and uh, Tiger's careers. Those are guys who had success very early at a young age and a great deal of success. And then as time went on, you know, Tiger reviled, obviously, for for the the things in his personal life that really I don't know anybody gives a shit about. But uh, and uh, Tom Brady, because, you know, oh, he cheated and all of that. And you've got Peyton Manning and Phil Mickelson, who are guys who are uh, considered through a great period of their career as the best at what they do without having won a championship or a tournament, uh, a major tournament. And other than that other guy. If you if you it would have been nice if they would have paired Tiger and Tom and Phil with Eli with Peyton, because if Phil and Peyton win, that's a story for the ages. Now you kind of have a mishmash of uh, of a guy that was the best and the guy that was considered second best and the guy that was the best and the guy that was considered second best. Right. True. Right. True. Interesting take on that. It would have been uh, it, w- it would have been perhaps more drama. Uh, but this way, I think it's a uh, it, it's it's an awful lot of fun. And I am looking forward to it. That's on Sunday. Sunday All right. Now, John. O'clock. It's broadcast on a number of different uh, channels, too. I think it's like TNT has it, a couple of golf channels. I think it's on a number of different channels. So it's a live sporting event, folks. Live sporting event. Will they be, will they be wearing masks, you think? Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure they have to wear masks when they play. Right. Um, and I don't know what the situation is because, you know, they're, they, they've had a, a PGA a tour event, and guys were uh, actually carrying their own bags. 
I, yeah. I, so I read I what the situation with that is. I read actually it's going to be the rule of that gentleman that was throwing, having his caddy throw the golf club to him, and then he was catching the club and swinging it until he almost <laughs> killed his girlfriend, and then they stopped. <laughs> yeah, that would I, I it, you know you'd probably get a lot of people tuning in if there was a chance that there would be some sort of tragedy during. <laughs> it would yes. definitely yes. bolster the ratings. Yeah. Yes, of course, people, you know are macabre by nature. All right. Now we did this, we did this bit, we did this parlor game, uh, for previous shows. And I, I put down a name that I don't think is the correct name. What did we, what did we use to name it, John? I think you remember retro tweets, retro tweets. Nice retro tweets, um, tweets from back in the day before Twitter was invented, but it's just, you know, it's odd. People just sat around and went, you know, if they ever invent Twitter, I'm prepared. We are going to do this. Yes. If they if they ever have a platform where this can be read by multitudes, I'm going to go ahead and do this. So we're going to start with our uh, and and I think some of these, John. Well, maybe not. When was Twitter officially invented? Like 08, 09? Jeff, do you know this? I don't know the exact date, but that sounds that sounds right uh, in the 2010 uh, area. Okay, so here we go. Here's a couple from oh, uh, here's a couple from oh eight. Actually, there's one from oh eight, and it's right here. It's February third, two thousand eight, ten twenty p.m. Looks wow. like ten twenty p.m. Eastern time. Someone someone tweeted very early in the life of Twitter. Eli getting sacked! Exclamation point. N.E. Perfect season, baby. New England, I'm assuming. Hashtag sorry, fish. Hashtag 19-0. Hashtag what could go wrong. Mm. Man. 2006 it was founded, Twitter. There it is. Wow, there you go. So Twitter was there, and it's amazing that during that amazing play where Eli was sacked almost three times before throwing it to David Tyree, February 3rd, 2008, it's amazing this guy had that much time to tweet all that out and be so full of hubris. Remarkable. Yeah, that's, you know, pro- well, I'll, I'll listen to a few more. I have, you know, I have one issue. If you're going to hashtag something, there's probably one thing you should never use as the hashtag because, you know, you're just daring. Yeah, you're daring yeah. the fates. Hashtag what could go wrong is probably, you know what? A lot could go wrong. So 20 years before that, this guy had a lot of uh, oppressions. 20 years before that, October 15th, 1988, 8.38 p.m. I believe this is West Coast time. 8.38 p.m. This guy tweets, two strikes on Gibson. The man can't walk, much less hit. Ha ha, what a joke. Game one is in the books. Hashtag sweep. Hashtag Dodgers suck. Hashtag A's all the way. Hashtag what can go wrong. Again. <laughs> It's, it's, I mean, I'd have been there. I'd have been full of hubris too. First couple yeah. of times that uh, he looked that he horrible swung, at the plate. He looked like he was yeah. going to fall down. Yeah, you know. So I get that. But what could go wrong? It's baseball, guys. It's there's no clock. Can't run a couple of dive plays into the line. Why would you? Why would you be full of that sort of hubris? Remarkable. But again, those A's they yep. un- underperformed when push came to shove. And it's Eckersley on the mound. And this guy was just so full of hubris. The man can't walk, much less hit. Ha ha. He's celebrating that somehow. What a joke. Okay. Yeah. Game one in the books. That that didn't work out for that guy. And then I I uh, I threw out a tweet back in 01, John, August Uh-oh. 15th, uh, from Mark Fur at Mark 
underscore Ferreira. At Patriots camp, pathetic. Hashtag worst team in the NFL. And I actually called back into the ESPN club uh, reporting on how horrible they looked in that training camp. In 01, they had gone 5-11 and the year before. I believe their offensive line coach had passed away from a heart attack. Uh, who was the middle linebacker that just didn't show up? The one from Ohio State, John. Who was that guy? Do you remember? Oh, oh goodness! I, I off the top of my head, I can't. I should. I'll see At any rate, it looked horrible. We didn't even do a story on the Patriots. We did a story on the cheerleaders. That's how bad they looked. So your tweet again was at Patriots camp. Pathetic. Hashtag worst team in the NFL. Yeah. Well, you know, at least you didn't say what could go wrong at the end of that. It was that. <laughs> So you had that going for you. Um, all right. Uh, I actually found one. Oh, you found a retro treat. Yeah, not a, it's not a sports tweet. Okay. And it goes way, way back. Wow, good. Historical sort Beautiful. of Beautiful. Um, when you said you wanted to do this, I, you know, I, I, I did the research, and I couldn't find any sports ones. Yeah, so I'll, yeah, I'll yeah. work a little harder. You threw this at me a little bit last minute, so I didn't have a ton of a chance, but I, but I ran across this one. Yeah. This is April 14th, 1865. Wow. Wow. Just, uh, God, you know, talk about, talk about seeing something coming. Yeah, no doubt. No you doubt. Know, 143 years, uh, or 141 years, you say 2006, 141 years ahead of time. Amazing. And the at great emancipator, uh-huh. uh huh. he tweeted this, Mary wants to go to the theater tonight. Shoot me in the head. Well, at least that Laura Keene is hot. Hashtag war's almost over. Hashtag what could go wrong. So even Abraham Lincoln, even Abraham Lincoln, what could go wrong? I'm just going to the theater. We're going to go see our American cousin. I found uh, found one here from, uh, it looks like the late 70s. Okay. At John McKay. Buccaneers offense execution, hashtag in favor of it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. That's, that's an outstanding one. one. And if, boy, good old John McKay, boy, oh, boy. Buccaneers. Woo. But three years later, he has them in the uh, NFC Championship game. Yep. Against yep. the Rams, they could have easily won that game. Great defensive battle. Yeah, it, it really was. And it was ended up being 9 nothing in that game. And, and the thing uh, is about that, too, is back then people think, oh, you know, in their third year, because people look in, I believe, in the second year of the uh, Jaguars and the Panthers. I believe yep. they were both in the, in the championship games. But back then, you know, an expansion team was expected to struggle for the better part of two decades before oh, they, yeah. you know, it was ridiculous. John McKay and, and there's a football life on the uh, the Owen 26, I believe, uh, Buccaneers. They went yep. both their first 26 games. And uh, it's it's an awful lot of fun. But truth be told, John McKay was a, an amazing coach as an NFL coach to get them there that quickly. There's no doubt about it. And obviously he's a Hall of Fame college coach. And uh, he was able to turn that team around because that was in the middle of the 1970 end of the 1977 season. John, they won, they lost 26 games through all of 76 and most of 77. And then one then they have another year. And then the following year, they're in the championship game. Two years later, they're in the playoffs. But then by 1983, they go on a horrible run uh, that isn't 
you know, it's a it's a it's a decade and a half run of absolute futility that was finally broken when Tony Dungy got there. But yeah, John McKay, not quite a loss to history guy, mm. but perhaps with the, this younger generation, uh, th- that's a guy. He he should be a legend in college football to anyone who who studies college football on any level. But what he did with the Bucks was absolutely extraordinary. Well, and All right, so. Pete- Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but until Pete Carroll got to USC, um, really nobody had a great deal of success there. No one near the success that the both of those guys had at a school that, if you look at all the talent in California, should always be a contender. But they went through years. They had some good years under John Robinson and here here and there. But uh, John McKay and to Pete Carroll, those are the guys who turned USC into an every year contender. And no one else really did that in between. Yeah, John McKay was pretty good and had, I think, multiple Heisman winners under him as well. Uh, but you're right. In terms of being in the conversation about being a national cha- champion e- each and every year, Carroll did that for a few years. And John McKay certainly established that with the Trojans in Southern California. All right. Uh, quickly, we're going to get to our uh, poll question. The most heartbreaking loss in a game for your team. We didn't or get that series. many responses and uh, Tom Marino, his first one, Jeff. Tom Marino from the left coast. Uh, being a big Angels fan, my most heartbreaking moment was Dave Henderson's back-breaking homer off of Donnie Moore in the uh, ALCS 1986 Game 5. It would take the Angels 16 more years to get to the World Series. Um, I remember it like it was yesterday. Incidentally, Donnie Moore went on to uh, take his own life don't know if it had any relation to this game, but boy, what a tragedy. Thanks, guys. Actually, I think it did. Donnie Moore, a uh, really sad story after that. Uh, got into some uh, uh, domestic abuse issues. I guess Moore had a lot of, I think, uh, might have had a drinking problem as well. And uh, people around him say that he was never the same after that. Uh, because, again, we, we brought him not only does it is a heartbreaking loss, Mark, but that that 86 ALCS was one of the great American League championship series of all time. And it really was sad that any team had to lose that because it was just such a great battle. But Moore never bounced back from that. And he was, if not the preeminent closer in the American League at that time, among the top, I think you would agree, two or three. It was rough. They had a 3-1 lead in that ALCS managed by Gene Mock. Yeah, second-place manager in baseball history. Famous clam as well. The, the biggest one, the 64 Phillies that he managed. Look it up if you are interested. Uh, and they had a 3-1 to lead in that series. That was, I think, Reggie Jackson's maybe last year as playing with the Angels. And uh, they had a, a, a lead in the ninth inning. A lead at home in the ninth inning. I think a two-run lead. And, and I think Henderson hits a three-run home run. And they, they managed to get it into extra innings go back and forth, but then they lost. They go back to Boston, then they get blown away in the in Game uh, 6 and Game 7. Just a brutal, heartbreaking loss. And like Tommy said, you know, it's 16 years, and it's the 0-2, the aforementioned 0-2 uh, World Series where they came back, and they, you know, certainly got their pound of flesh on an unwitting team as well. We'll talk about ours for just a second, because, again, mine, and as I went through the mark, I said uh, – uh, for me, I went to the uh, to Super Bowl 18 uh, Redskins and Raiders because, again, that was a better Redskin team, not only than the Raiders. I, I think they were probably better th- throughout the year. They were a better team, but uh, they were a better team than the team that had won the Super Bowl the year before. Um, 
a lot of heartbreaking losses as a Virginia basketball fan, uh, some as a Florida football fan. The choke at Dope comes to, to mind, and there are others. Um, the last, the Tennessee game in 2001, which I was at, very dis- disappointing. But for me, it, it really does go back to the 1979 uh, Baltimore Orioles because I was uh, very engaged around the age of 13 or 14 uh, baseball moved up the list on things that were important to me. And part of it was that the, the Orioles were becoming uh, a better, they were building to being a very, very good team. Um, so that was a, a series where you're up two to nothing. You think, all right, we look at this pitching staff, Mike Flanagan, Scott McGregor, Dennis Martinez, Jim Palmer, and then you lose to what I believed was a, a team with an inferior, and certainly with an inferior pitching staff in the Pittsburgh Pirates. So that was pretty disappointing. Well, and you had a three to one lead with the last two games at home. I mean, that yeah. that does not happen that often in Major League Baseball, John. I think the St. Louis Cardinals had that happen to them in the 68 World Series. They're up 3-1, to one, and the last two, even if you lose Game 5, you're going to have the last two games at home. The 2003 Chicago Cubs went through that uh, with the Marlins. They're up 3-1. to one. Okay, so the Marlins win Game 5 in Florida. They get, they get two games in Chicago, and uh, you had two games in Baltimore— up 3-2 yeah. against an inferior team. That's a rough one. That's different. Um, That's the different. Giants yeah. losing in 2002, they had to go they had to go to Anaheim. They had a 3-2 lead going to Anaheim, but those last two games are in Anaheim. But yeah, there's a 5-nothing lead in the 7th inning in game 6 with a 3-2 lead. Um and Scott Spezio hits a 3-run home run and at that moment and I'm sitting in Trudy's living room watching it. And we are a very new couple, just months old. And she got to see the very special sports fan I can be. And when I say very special, I mean the, quite the opposite. Um, I, In this case, I didn't run off and get into a car and try and go to the Hard Rock Cafe and blow what, everything in my savings. Just throw it all away. Because somewhere in the back of your mind, you went, you know, there may be a period where I go like eight months without a gig. So maybe I ought to not go play blackjack because because a, a baseball team full of people I don't know and I'll never meet in town that I don't live in anymore uh, had a bad game. I think I'm going to you know, what? I'm going to piss away everything. Because it means that much to it, me. It does. And in 02, I just bowed my head. I just my head just sank. When he hit that three-run home run, the Giants still have a two-run lead, mind you, in the seventh inning. And I knew it was over. I knew they had lost the World Series. They had a 3-2 in-game lead. They had a 5-3, to three, uh, you know, in terms of the actual game they're playing in game six. And I turned to where I said the whole thing's over. And she just did not understand. And I knew. The history of the Giants, I just knew. I was watching uh, that, the I was watching the Yankees, Red Sox, the um, uh, uh, you know what's his now he's the manager of the Yankees hit the home run at the end of the game off of Wakefield. Uh, oh, oh, uh, Boone. Yeah, Aaron Boone, a home run. Uh, I was watching that with my uh, my my wife and my mother in law and her husband at the time, and they're all from New England. And when the Red Sox were up in that game. And it started, you know, you can feel that in baseball as much as anything when when all of a sudden things are just eh, it, momentum seems to have switched, even though we're ahead. It seems like momentum switched against us. And and uh, 
in the spirit of hashtag what could go wrong, my mother-in-law said, oh, don't worry about it. They'll win. And uh, myself and my and my uh, former father-in-law both and I had no dog in the hunt. We both just our head our heads went to our chest and we realized that it was over. Yeah. And that's so I. I, I felt that even though I didn't really care that much. Though I hate the Yankees, so I wanted them to lose. Right. So uh, the other one for me, obviously, is the 1990 championship game. And I once that fumble happened, I knew it was over. Uh, I didn't think it was quite over when Joe Montana was out, essentially ending his 49er career. Because you had Steve Young. Had Steve Young. Figured we could run out the clock. We were doing very well with that. And then Roger Craig, who is well past his prime, even though his prime was probably 16 months earlier, that's what running backs – as a rule, that's what happens to them. They just fall off yes. a cliff. Um, uh, but I knew that was over as well. Uh, we had some other uh, guests, other listeners chime in as well. We uh, we had one who said the choke at the doke, who I think if you're a Gator fan, that was rough, even though it wasn't even a loss. It was a tie. And um, also Cleveland fans, our, our, our listener Nina chimed in with just a litany, a <laughs> litany of games if you're a Cleveland fan. And – and it does go on and on, John Pelkey. I mean, you're talking 1980 uh, with Brian Sype and that interception in the end zone Why they uh, in the ball? divisional game. You're talking 86 with the drive, 87 with the fumble. That is that Ernest Biner with the fumble? It is Ernest Biner. You have 02 when they come back, and it's Bruce, um, former coach of the Miami Hurricanes, who was their first coach coming back, the uh, Browns' first coach coming back. Who's that guy? Oh, uh, um, uh, Butch Davis. Butch Davis, not Bruce Davis. Butch Davis. He had them back in the playoffs. They had a huge lead in that divisional or in that wild card game against the Steelers and lost it. Thank you. That's me. I apologize. No, it's all right. Got a little too. You got it. It's so sad when you talk about uh, uh, Cleveland sports history. My God, and that's the other thing too, Mark. Because like 86, 87, 80, it, it, it was like a, for a decade, every other yeah. year, back to back years, they'd lose in just heartbreaking yep. manner. Yep, heartbreaking fashion over and over again. It's it's true, John. It is true. You know, you have Modell moving the team then in the in the middle part of the decade you, with the indians they get to the world series in in 97 uh they lose that in seven games and in extra innings oh by the way in 07 they're in the alcs against the red Sox with a three to one lead and lose that and then in in 2016 against the cubs they had that game they had that game won yep. and uh it, it is it is a remarkable litany of heartbreak for people in Cleveland. It, it is remarkable when it comes to Cleveland. And it's funny because that was, uh, you know, growing up, my dad had a soft spot because he grew up in Ohio. And uh, though they were actually closer to Cincinnati, they were Cleveland sports fans. It went back to their Bob Feller fans. Let's that's where it really started. And they paid a little more attention to Cleveland sports. But but it is really remarkable and particularly with the Browns when you look at it. And, um, you know, the amount of time, 1964, the last time that they won uh, a championship um, and not like Detroit, really, where you're really never in the conversation. With Cleveland, they were in the conversation. Those Sam Martigliano teams in the yeah. in the early 80s with Brian Sype were very good. And it yep. seemed like, oh, gosh, 
you know, the Steelers have finally aged out of owning the AFC. Now it's 1980. We, and they still just could not get it done. And then, of course, the Schottenheimer teams. And, yeah. you know, God love Marty Schottenheimer. And people give him so much, uh, you know, he's such a clam. But it's like Cleveland was a clam. And Kansas City was a clam. Even uh, e- even uh, San Diego was a clam. So everywhere Marty Schottenheimer went, they'd been clams before he got there. That's true. He's the official, hey, listen, we're going to clam anyway. So Marty will win a lot of regular season games, guy. Yeah, it's remarkable. And, and and we'll get you with Cleveland. In Cleveland's case, we'll win a couple of division uh, division playoff games to get us to the championships. So it's not as if he was just losing immediately when he went into the playoffs. No, he's a he was a terrific coach. But yeah, that's that that's a that's a but really all of those teams are teams that clammed no matter who was their coach. That's true. That's true. They had they had history of clamming before Marty Schottenheimer got there. Long history of clamming. Let's go to our progressive trivia answer, John Pelkey. All right, here, here once again the clues. Four-time Pro Bowler, led the NFL in passer rating five times, didn't become a full-time starter till his fourth year, 61% completion percentage in postseason, career numbers, 3,000-plus attempts, 1,800-plus completions, 150-plus touchdowns, an MVP, postseason, 15 touchdowns, three interceptions, not a clam, 200 pick in the draft, if you're an SEC school, Alabama, if you're scoring at home, and what would you actually be scoring? Won at least one Super Bowl, retired with the second-best passer rating in NFL history. Uh, Otto Graham was at number one at that point in time. It's 1974, and it's remarkable. It's still Otto Graham at that point. Uh, the losing record as a head coach, and the fun clue of the day, I was replaced as head coach by a teammate I played with for 14 years, and it was in my same Hall of Fame class. That player was Forrest Gregg, and the answer to our progressive trivia is Bart Starr. Well, that's uh, amazing. I didn't realize he retired in 1974, John? 1974. Yikes. Man, that is a... I'm sorry, I say 74, 72. I'm so sorry, 72. My bad. That makes a little more... Retired before the 72 season. Okay. Yeah, that makes a little bit more and sense. And he came back, actually, uh, and uh, and sorry, and thank you for correcting me on that. Um, I, I know it means a lot to you. Uh, that uh, he uh, he was going to come back for the 72 season and went, I think, to uh, the off-season training camp and then retired in off-season training camp. And then ended up uh, replacing Dan Devine, as yeah. who he was uh, the quarterback coach for with Green Bay, when Dan Devine left to take over uh, Notre Dame. And then he was replaced uh, a number of years later by Forrest Gregg, who had been a coach of that. You mentioned the callback. You had guessed Ken Anderson on this. And, of course, Forrest Gregg was coach for Ken Anderson uh, when they won the AFC championship in 1981 and went on to lose to your San Francisco 49ers. So there you go. Bart Starr. And I, I you know, I came up with this one, Mark, because there's a great new hundredth anniversary video documentary of the Green Bay Packers. And it's a several episode um, documentary, and I watched some of it last night. It's on YouTube. Uh, you can check it out. And it's just, it's remarkable to, uh, that whole story is remarkable, the Vince Lombardi era, where he took over a team that had only won one game. And, and the next se- two seasons later, he has them in the NFL championship. And three seasons later, they win um, their first of five. Um, and Bart Starr had languished on the bench behind Tobin wrote when he first came in. And then uh, it, it did not look like he was going to establish himself as a full-time starter, but he 
took to Lombardi and Lombardi took to Bart Starr and the rest is history. And he, another guy who's never mentioned among the greats and really should be. Yeah, that's true. And I, I don't think they took to each other exactly right off the bat either. So it, no, in it fact, took, he took a while. About, he talked about he knew. Here's what Starr said. And I've seen this in a couple of documentary in different interviews with Bart Starr is that he said when uh, Lombardi first came in, he said to those guys, I've never been um, I've, I've, I've never been associated with a loser. And I'm not going to be associated with a loser here. And he didn't. He didn't have a losing season after the one win season. They were over 500 the next year. But Bart Starr said he heard that and he went and called his wife and said, we're going to have this team will be a winner. We're going to win now. He felt so good about it. But he did have an issue because Lombardi obviously would chew players out. And he said, I can't lead this team if they see you chewing me out in front of them. If if I do something wrong, bring me into the office and chew me out there. I don't mind the but I can't do it because it's eroding um, the respect that the players have for me. And I thought that was very interesting. And in the documentary, they also talked about the fact that for all of the, uh, the great Henry Jordan, uh, when he was asked the defensive lineman, how does Lombardi treat you? Does he treat you all the same? And he said, yeah, he treats us like dogs. Um, a lot of players came in, I think Boyd Dowler among them, and said, actually, he was really good at knowing who he could really ride hard and the guys that he couldn't do that with, because that I think is something that as a coach in any sport, um, you, you can't be inflexible in that way. And some people are motivated by yelling at them and telling them that they're garbage and whatever. And other guys do not respond well to that. And that Lombardi for all of the bluster and you see that, what the hell's going on out there? That he was actually a guy who knew how to determine what would motivate you. And that's yeah. really what makes a great coach. Yep. He, and, and he meets every player where they are at in terms of not only the, the discipline, if you will, but also the encouragement and the inspiration. All right. Well, that does it for our show. A lot, lot of fun. Talked about a lot of things. Reintroduced retro tweets, John Pelkey. I don't know. Hashtag, what could go wrong? What could go wrong? Thank you, Jeff. Enjoy the beach. We will talk to every one of you out there on Monday. For John Pelkey, Jeff Taylor, I'm Mark Ferrer. You've been listening to After Further Review. Stay safe, folks. Sheriff said to me